Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. My guest is Paul Tuff. He's... One of my favorite authors on education, he's written a new book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. And this book is about how the admissions process for college is pretty much designed to protect the privileged and lock in the economic disparities in in our country. It's an important book. The admissions process today is insane. Colleges like Harvard and Princeton are sending letters to high school juniors and seniors saying, we think you'd be a great candidate for Harvard or or Duke or Princeton or Yale. And uh, the purpose is just to get more students to apply to these schools so that they can reject them. And this serves the purpose of getting the percentage of applicants who get in be as low as possible. And that's a metric that U.S. News and World Report uses to rank schools in terms of selectivity. This U.S. News and World Report ranking is a sham as far as I am concerned and Paul Tuff is concerned. Does U.S. News and World Report, by the way, actually put out news and a world report? This list of theirs is their money-making scam. (sighs) Okay. Now we have also the common application. So students can fill out one application and apply to 20 schools across a range of how selective the schools are. And college counselors in affluent schools uh, tell the kids to go to the most selective college that accepts you because that confers status. Now, Paul Tuff has uh, written about this. He, he writes about how bogus the SAT scores are. There's training for those things. This is an important interview, you know, unlike all, all the others. Hey, everybody. I'm here in a studio in uh, Minneapolis with uh, Paul Tuff. 
and Paul is a very influential writer on education. He wrote a, a, a great book a few years ago called How Children Succeed, and it talked about... Um, They're called ACEs. Yeah. Adverse Childhood Experiences. Adverse Childhood Experiences. And how they affect learning. Mm -hmm. And those examples of those are extreme poverty, witnessing violence. Yeah, any kind of trauma, abuse, neglect, uh, as well as having parents who are incarcerated or addicted or some kind of mental illness. All of those experiences count as an, an, an one point on the adversity score, and all of them have a significant impact on how kids develop, especially early in life. And it has to do with the chemistry in your brain? And... Yeah, when children uh, are experiencing stress that is intense and chronic, and all of these adverse experiences tend to do that, it kicks in the fight-or-flight response in kids, and that affects their physical development, it affects their mental development, and it sort of affects their psychological development as well. And it makes it harder to learn when, when they have their fight-or-flight response sort of constantly on full alert. It's hard to sit there in a pre-K or a kindergarten class. And How Children Succeed is about trying to address that. And a very, very influential book. I was once flying back from Washington to Minneapolis, and four people were reading the book on the plane. Fantastic. Yeah, that was very, yeah, yeah, that doesn't happen a lot. Okay, th- this one is sort of, well, it's about college. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. So this is really about social mobility, economic mobility, just the uh, tremendous gaps in in wealth in this country, the way college works now, way higher education works now, what this book is about is that it ain't, ain't helping at all. It's making things worse. Is, is that fair to say? Uh, it is fair to say. So this is a moment where higher education is more important in, in, I think, national life than it ever has been. Clearly, all the signs in the economy in the labor market are that we need uh, more young people with more credentials, more skills, more education. Uh, and yet we've done two things, I think, to our higher education system over the last while. One is that we've made it less effective at doing that. So we have a lower graduation rate than I think any other country in the world, meaning lower graduation rate of people who start college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and second, it's become more inequitable. So we have this real stratification again compared to other countries, compared to other moments in American history where – at the most selective, most uh, sort of well-endowed institutions, we have lots of well-off kids and very few low-income kids. Uh, and then in the institutions that do have a lot of low-income students, we ha- we are funding those less well than we used to, uh, and they have lower graduation rates than anyone else. Yeah, and, and even some that go into for-profit yeah. colleges, which I'm not a big fan of generally. Yeah, there are some that are good, but you aren't either – Yes. I mean, they, yeah, just, just because of their, their outputs. They just have – they charge a lot and they graduate. And they spend how much on marketing and how much on actual education? Well, yeah. I think the number was it, they twice as much on, on profit taking and uh, marketing that they do on education. You're saying how we, we, we as a country do a bad job of graduating the students who, who go into post-secondary education. I remember a hearing where – I was on health, education, labor, and pensions, and we had uh, a gentleman from the OECD 
which is the Organization of Economically Developed Countries. That's probably not what it stands for, but it's that's what it is. And that's, you know, us in Europe and Chile and uh, Australia and Japan. We had gone from first in the world in terms of a percentage of our population that graduated from college to 12th. Yes. And I remember the hearing because uh, Bernie Sanders is still on the committee, and he, he was questioning the guy from the OECD, and he says, I imagine that the cost of college here is is part of the reason that we don't, you know, that we've fallen in the numbers. Can I ask you a question? How much the cost to go to college in, say, Germany? And the guy says, well, in Germany, you go to college for free. And he goes, uh, that's, oh, that's what I understood. How much in, in, say, France? And the guy says, in France, you also don't pay to go to college. Okay, how about in, uh, say, uh, Sweden? He said, in Sweden, they pay you to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie's favorite hearing in all. You know, I mean, he he went right to it, and it's it's true that the money is a big part of all of this. And basically, your book, this book is really engrossing, really uh, heartbreaking in some ways, because you tell this through stories. Mm -hmm. And the stories are, a lot of the stories are of uh, kids who are growing up in tough circumstances, and poverty, and who work really hard with a dream of going to a good college. And there's all different kinds of outcomes, but some of them get into the most, you know, select colleges there are, like Princeton. But then they get there and they hate, they hate it yeah. because everybody's – not everybody, but almost everybody is rich. There are all these levels where all these levels of obstacles for those for those students. Yeah, that that's just sort of the the very last one. In some ways, it's it's the least like from a policy point of view, it's the least important. Like, so I read about this young woman, Kiki Gilbert, uh, who grows up in this really low income, pretty chaotic family. She's brilliant. She works incredibly hard. She gets to Princeton, and this was a moment at Princeton where the president of Princeton was talking a lot about how. Um, diverse and equitable Princeton was becoming. And, and so I had had his quotes on the one hand and then I had Prince, uh, Kiki's experience at Princeton saying like, eh, it doesn't really seem that way. The, the way she put it at one point was that Princeton's idea of a low-income student is different than my idea of a low-income student. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I think is probably true. So, But I say all that to say like that while that should change and they should do a better job of, of making Kiki uh, feel welcome – that 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 part of the problem is pretty minor, right? Like she's going to get this incredible education. She's going to go on and do great. She's like academically, she's thriving there, and she, and she's now sort of finding her community as a junior. So I do feel like like it's an issue, and obviously now you write do about write it. though quite a bit about how alienating it is. It is when they first get there, and you know, even some of the kids who are of color have gotten into a, like a prep for prep program, which, uh, you know, when they're like a freshman in high school, mm -hmm. 
and sometimes gets sent to like a boarding school even. And by the time they get to one of these schools, one of these very selective schools, they get it. They get because they've been going to school with rich kids. And, and they're different. The rich kids are different. Yeah. Now, one of the schools that you talk about, and this is really fascinating to me, is Trinity. Mm-hmm. Now, Trinity is a school in Hartford, right? Connecticut. Yeah. Trinity College, yeah. Trinity College. It has uh, a pretty great reputation. Uh, George Will went there. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I mean, uh, Trinity, I'm sure, is great, but he seems like he didn't probably do what now you say college counselors do, which is apply to a range of colleges, the most select like Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and Yale, and then apply to, you know, a school that you think you probably might get into and then one you'll definitely get into. And you have a range from the most selective to the least selective. And then Go to the school that you get into that's the most selective by U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. So that and and I think I feel like that's something that counselors say, but it's also just this change. It's like this this sort of uh, chip that's been planted into the brains of uh, high scoring and especially affluent American teenagers over the past few decades. And it may just be sort of. I mean, you know, George Will is. I think it's fair to say from another generation and I think I I feel like in his generation people were making their decisions even well off high scoring students as I assume he was um, based on you know where their parents went or where they liked the squash team or what was regionally. The squash team I should say that since 1999 Mm -hmm. they have won the college championship the national championship every year but three. And in those years, they came in second. You know a lot about the Trinity squash team. I am a nationally ranked squash player. But I have the go-to quote that I think of the book. And this is what happened to Trinity. So this Angel Perez, is that his name? It is, yes. Okay, Angel Perez is one of the kind of students that you talk about. Poor kid. Uh, grew up in the South Bronx. Yep. He got great grades, was a really good student, but he got low scores on what was the uh, SATs or ACTs. Yeah. One, one or the other. And somebody figured out this guy, this, we should take him. And what was it? What did he get into? Yale? Skidmore. Skidmore. Oh, that's right. Skidmore. So he goes to Skidmore, and then he, he's a great student, and he ends up getting his Ph.D., then he becomes the head of admissions at Trinity. Yeah. And Trinity had been getting kind of worse and worse in terms of its student body because it needed money mm-hmm. or that every college needs to get, you know, break even at least. And it turned out like the kids at Trinity were getting kind of richer and richer. And they were kids who were getting pretty good SAT scores because, as you write, you you profile uh, Ned Johnson, who is a, uh, you know, a Washington, D.C. Uh, SAT coach, <laughs> basically, you know, and gets paid very well for it, like $400 an hour. Yes, and he's very good at it, and he, he improves his students' t- uh, scores by remarkable amount. Yeah, and you profile him and sort of how he does it. Yeah. 
And part of it is, is psychological. He just gets them to relax. But there's also like tricks on the SAT. So these are kids who tend to get decent or better SAT scores, but not such good grades. And so they get in the Trinity and they are not great students because they're not curious and they tend to drink a lot. They tend to party a lot. So Angel goes there and looks at what's happening to Trinity, which is was considered a very, very elite school in terms of academics. And things are kind of going the wrong way. And so he changes this, right? And he goes away from the SATs. What's yes, that he called? Goes, he goes test optional, meaning that students can apply without submitting their SAT or ACT scores. Because rich kids tend to do better on SATs because they can get coaching, right? Yeah, there's sort of these two. The, so the college board talks about uh, these two groups of discrepant scores, students who have higher SAT scores than their um, GPA would predict and students who have higher GPAs than their SAT scores would predict. Uh, and and you can say something about these two groups. So the ones who have especially high GPAs but lower SAT scores tend to be super motivated. It means they're working really hard in school. They maybe don't have all the academic uh, opportunities that those other students do. They certainly aren't getting a lot of ACT and SAT coaching. And that group tends to be more low-income, more black and Latino or Latina, more first-generation students. Then you have this other group that is like the kids at Trinity, the ones who have super high, uh, relatively high SAT or ACT scores compared to their, their relatively low GPAs. And those students are usually lacking in motivation, right? Like to get a good GPA, you really just have to try. You have to work hard. You have to like make sure everything's done on time. <laughs> right. These are kids who really aren't like the kids you profile, like the poor kids you right. profile who are hungry, yeah. hungry for – and really love studying and love knowledge and work their asses off because they know this is the path. There's a, a line in that chapter where I talk about this, this phrase college ready, which is a phrase that the college board likes to have. Like, like there, there's a cutoff for what test score means that you're college ready. And the reality is that a lot of students in that discrepant group, those you know rich kids who don't try very hard in school but get a lot of SAT coaching, they have a test score that indicates that they're college ready. But they are not, in fact, college ready because they haven't worked hard in high school. They're not going to suddenly work hard in college. Okay, so Angel Perez is now – becomes the the head of admissions there and he uh goes to something called test optional mm -hmm. meaning that kids don't have to send in their test scores their sat scores or their act scores in their application and bang u.s news and world report just because of that their rating goes for, from number 38 to number 44. Four, and the rule now from counselors, college counselors in school is tell me the rule. The most basic algorithm is just apply to lots of different colleges, but go to the one that accepts you that is ranked highest on, on U.S. News or that has is most selective, has the highest average ACT score or rejects the most students. All of these things tend to... So where you rank matters because when you're putting a class together... You have to put out more invitations, yep. more acceptances, because uh, every kid go pretty much goes to the most selective school. Exactly. So if you go from 38th to 44th, you're going to get fewer kids accepting your acceptance 
and that plays into money. Absolutely. And, and so here is, I just love this letter from the English faculty to the trustees, because this is a shock. Going from 38 to 44 is a shock. And it's all because they're, they're doing test optional. Mm-hmm. And so the English department, 14 or 17 members of the Trinity's English department, writes in. And then here is a, a quoting them. We perceive in many of these students a refreshing array of qualities that were all too rare <laughs> in prior years. Intellectual curiosity, openness of mind and spirit, and genuine will to engage with their peers, the professors wrote. Now, these are the kids who have been admitted under the new rules, the new regime. And then you write, if Perez's new admissions policies were, quote, having inadvertent temporary effects on U.S. News and World Report's dubious selectivity measure, they concluded, we think this is a small price to pay for one of the most exciting transformations Trinity has witnessed in many years. So basically, what this letter is saying We're the faculty, when you admit students like this, using this method, you get a lot better students and a lot better place to teach and just a better student body. And that's what U.S. News and World Report ranked them four or five or six steps lower because they did that. So, So that is, to me, this paragraph says to me, Holy crap. The way schools are judged, the way the whole system works is based on something that's in many ways 180 degrees opposite from the way actually we should be doing it. Yeah, the system is full of these perverse incentives to admit more rich kids. I mean, the, the, the other crazy thing about, the, about what was going on at Trinity during those years is that as – so Trinity had, uh, according to this economist study, literally more – a higher proportion of families in the top 1%, the super rich kids, than any other institution. It was, the, it was the greatest concentration of super rich kids of any other institution and they were losing $8 million a year. So they were going broke educating super rich kids, right, which is crazy. Um, and that has to do with the, the the way that enrollment management works, the way financial aid works. They had to – because these students, these rich kids have so much power now in the negotiations over they tuition and financial aid. Yeah, that they needed discounts even though they could clearly afford to pay full tuition. But there's a lot of Mercedes, I understand. Yes. In the, in the parking, parking lot. lot. Yeah. And yeah. And the other crazy uh, statistic that I love from Trinity was that during those those years, there was just a, a pretty small cohort of low-income students. But they were superstar, academic superstars. But this was before Angel came. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their graduation, their six-year graduation rates were like 10 percentage points higher than the super rich kids who were uh, not, like dropping out or goofing off or not concluding. I mean to me what that Trinity story does is I, I feel like we have this um, – even you know people who like pay attention to this and 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 are are uh, like understand that SAT scores aren't everything. I feel like we still 
believe in them in this big way. We still feel like, well, that's, you know, GPAs, th- those are going to be different in different schools. Like maybe the poor kids aren't being graded as hard. But like the SAT, that is this this objective measure that that really tells you how smart a kid is. So so we sort of think when you go test optional, you're going to be letting in kids. Like you're doing these kids a favor, right? You're letting in these like not so bright poor kids who uh, we're just going to like throw a bone to and let them in. And and, and what happened at Trinity is just sh- constantly surprising because it's the opposite. Because it's those students who were doing better, working harder, succeeding at higher rates – uh, and it was the high-scoring kids who were not able to keep up. Now, let's just underscore why this is important, at least why I, I think this is important. And I just go to global warming. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, what? To uh, stop the Earth from warming to a disastrous, I mean, to, to you know, uh, the turn of the next century – just becoming unlivable and just uh, in many, many areas and uh, sea level rising so high that we have to abandon, you know, Miami <laughs> and, and we're having fires everywhere and turning off the electricity, you know, uh, and people are starving and there's uh, refugees from everywhere and that presents military problems because there's right to prevent that. We have to make some innovations. And who's going to do that? We need everybody. We need everybody. And the ones that make it that you profile, and I want you to talk about them because they are really fascinating stories mm-hmm. and amazing kids. We need more of them. We need to just be better educated. And so I don't hear anything about education in this election thus far. Nothing. And except for, you know, whether it should be free. Mm-hmm. There are different approaches that you talk about, like what Texas does. Mm-hmm. But that's why I just think this is like maybe the most important issue there is. And no one ever mentions it. I think that's true. I mean, I actually do feel like the fact that the, like those free college plans, I feel like are important. And I do think that they are um, sort of a not not like pe- people really respond to that on the campaign trail. Um, I don't think that those plans are are perfect. But like I do think that they could potentially I mean, you know, what your former colleagues are like more than I do and how they're able to, you know, move policy conversations forward. But it seems at least like there's some potential that that's the beginning of a, of a more productive conversation. That's the beginning of a conversation about really like who should be going to college, who should be paying for it, how much should we be investing in this as a nation. Well, you point out in the book, you write about the history of high school. It used to be at the turn of the last century, most kids didn't go to uh, – didn't finish high school. Yeah, 10 right? per, 10 per, so 1910. Uh, 10% of Americans were graduating from high school and like it wasn't because, you know, they were dumb and it wasn't because we were unenlightened. It was because you didn't need to. Like there were all the signs in the economy were like a sixth grade and eighth grade education were enough. And then things changed, right? There were these changes in the economy. There were new technologies and suddenly in order to succeed on the farm, in a factory, in an office, you needed a 12th grade education. And American communities between 1910 and 1940, this was called the high school movement, between 1910 and 1940, 
almost every American community built a high school and they were like, okay, let's just create this thing called high school and make it free. We'll raise our taxes. We'll pay for it. And by 1940, 50% of American teenagers were graduating from high school, from 10% to 50% in 30 years. And that was this huge sort of grassroots revolution. And it was like there weren't the kind of debates that we have today about like, you know, do we really need high school? Is this a, is this a, like a plot to yeah, – The uh, rich kids should pay for high school. Yeah, but the rich kids were paying for high school before that. But like, but yeah, this was just this this was just what our communities needed. And now but, we have the same situation. We're not responding the same. And way. we have the same situation in that now you need more complex education. This this idea that you needed a twelfth grade education was in 1910, uh, and there are still people now who are you know in 2019 are saying you know maybe twelfth grade education is enough. Like clearly, you need more education than that if you want to get the kind of job that these young people were getting in 1910 to support a family, to have a middle-class life. Uh, but we have not created a system that lets those students do that. So I do feel like that is the big question that I feel like we need to answer. And I think it partly is about, like, yes, getting those new scientists, getting everybody on board to solve climate change. But it's partly about having a fairer society as well because higher education is so tied in with social mobility. Um, there is this huge dividing line now between how successful people are with post-secondary post, uh, credentials and how successful they are without, that if we keep a system where there are – you can pay for that social mobility and with, if you don't pay, you don't get it. It's we'll a self-perpetuating system where yeah. the, the wealthy or the affluent stay affluent and wealthy and it is much, much harder as you illustrate in these stories for – someone who's growing up in an impoverished uh, situation to to get an education, to get the kind of education they need to do to advance in our society. And thus, this is a huge, huge social mobility and wealth disparity uh, issue. I just want to say, I, reading your book, I went back and thought about Mitt Romney mm -hmm. in 2012. Do you remember when he said to these uh, students – he was talking about student debt, and he just said, well, you know, you should borrow money from your parents <laughs> if you need to to start a business. Yeah. This is a guy running for president of the United States who thinks that you have – I don't know what he thinks. Why do, why do you have student debt if you can borrow money from your parents to start a business. That, how divorced from reality is that? Very, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we do have these blind spots when it comes to how higher education works, how families are paying for it, how families are even thinking about it. Um, and, and I feel like as, as those divides get bigger, we, we can sort of see across those lines less, less and less about uh, we are talking to uh, Paul Tuff, uh, author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. We'll be uh, right back uh, after this word. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts 
to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. We're talking to uh, Paul Tuff, uh, author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. So talk about some of these kids, okay? So the student I want to talk about I, uh, that I've been thinking about a lot is Yvonne Martinez, the uh, calculus student at the University of Texas. Uh -huh. I feel like in some ways she's emblematic of the of the potential. And so she's going to this very good uh, public flagship institution, the University of Texas. It has some unusual admissions policies. I think it's actually a very smart it, – I think so too. If you graduate in the top 10 percent of your high school class, you automatically get into the University of Texas. Yeah. And therefore, it isn't about your SATs. It's about you were a good student. Right. In your high school. You're right. So this goes back to exactly what we were talking yeah. about in terms of the difference between an SAT and a GPA. So 20 years ago, the Texas legislature passed this law, the top 10 percent rule. It's now more like the top 6 percent of okay. each high school that, that gets into UT Austin. So it forces UT to admit students from the top 6 percent of every high school in Texas. So the top 6 percent rule means that you have this different kind of class where you have more of those students from you know the Rio Grande Valley or like West sure. Texas – uh, ranching communities or inner city Houston who are great students but don't have high test scores because they are not from those well-off families and well-off backgrounds. And so they get together and they have a lot in common. They're all great students. They're all uh, Texans, but they have these big disparities in terms of their family background, what kind of resources their high schools had. So each each freshman class at UT just has a bigger range of what kind of kids are in there. They're literally more diverse in the way that college Yeah, which is about great because what I see at Princeton in, in, in what you write and other schools is the alienation of the few kids who just make it through this maze and, and, and get there right. that are uh, from homes that are very poor or uh, homes that are uh, black or, or Latino. And they uh, feel very alienated. Mm -hmm. At least at first, but it seems like it's a really rough experience 
for a lot of these kids. Yeah, so I was there in this calculus, this freshman calculus class at UT. There aren't many white kids. Uh, there's about an even mix of women and men. Um, and so those, the students don't feel, students like uh, Yvonne, who is, grew up in Mexico, immigrated to uh, Texas, grew up pretty poor on the west side of San Antonio, working class family. She she doesn't feel like an outsider. What, what happened? One of her parents was born in the U.S.? Is that what it turned yes. out? Yes. Her dad, it turned out, was born in the U.S. <laughs> so, she so, was able to make so he's an American citizen, it turns out. So he yeah. goes like, let's go. Let's, let's go, go to the United time. States. I mean, yeah. And, uh, and then she doesn't like it. Yeah, none of them like it. <laughs> so they actually had a really nice life in Mexico. But, yeah. like, they realized it was better educational opportunity. It was a cl- like the classic immigrant story of sacrificing for your kids. Um, the parents had office jobs in uh, Mexico, but they don't speak English. So when they got to – or didn't speak English. So when they got to Texas, her mom was cleaning houses. Her dad was working in a warehouse still doing that. Uh, her, her mom's now a janitor at a school. So, but they put all of their effort, uh, lots in, of immigrant in her parents education. Do, into the, their three kids' education, yeah. and Yvonne went further than anybody else. But, they, but so she gets, though, to, to freshman calculus, and uh, she is not on top of the class right away. She didn't get good AP And calculus. she's really, really stressing out about this, because freshman calculus is sort of the cut off for, hmm, am I going to able to be a scientist? Am I yeah. going to be able to be a doctor? Am I going to be able to do these, this whole career path? Sort of depends on how you do in first-year calculus. Right, and she wants to be a math major. She's actually failing yeah. the test. She's not yeah. getting to 60. She's getting 55 at one point. But there's this moment right before the second midterm where she, like, is trying to believe that it's all going to kick in and it's not. And she still doesn't know what she's doing. And she, on the bus, on the way to the test, she's crying. And she her, gets a call from her mom who's like, well, just come home to San Antonio. Go to community college. I'll cook for you. And so what she feels is like this, you know, sign of a lack of belief in her. And she has this conversation with a TA, this woman named Erica Winterer. And it it kind of turns things around for her because Erica's able to find, I feel like, this this pathway in between this super confident message and this super pessimistic message. She's like, you really are behind. You really are at a disadvantage compared to all these other students. It really is unfair. Uh, it really has been, you know, 18 years of disadvantage that are putting you where you are right now. But that isn't really who you are. You know, you really are a mathematician. You really are are able to succeed in this class. You do have to work harder than everybody else. But if you want to do that, I can help you do it. And there was something about that combination that I think made her – was able to cut through those two, you know, super positive and super negative narratives and change things for her. And she started – sort of putting herself in the line more and being okay about making mistakes and asking questions and really diving into the material. And she turns it around in the last few weeks and succeeds. And now she's uh, a junior. She's a master. She like aces the final. Yeah, she she gets an A on the final. Um, Um, And what you get on the final, if you ace the final, you get an A. Exactly. Yeah. And so she, she, she is able to continue into math. Into math. She's now she is a math major. <laughs> so the amount of suffering she did it on the way to this A is astounding. It just reminded me of something in the book. I'm sorry, but you were saying that the kids who grew up sort of uh, affluent or wealthy knew how to work the professors. 
This is really fascinating to me because I went to a very highly selective school. My dad was a printing salesman, you know. I was shocked at how sophisticated <laughs> the kids were where I went. Yeah. And still, I never got it. I never, I don't think I got it during the whole four <laughs> years, which is you schmooze, you go to the professor and start talking to him and compliment him. You say, mm-hmm. God, you were great. This lecture was <laughs> terrific. You know, we should get some coffee sometime. You know, that'd be like the last thing. You know, during the summers, I mowed grass for the city of St. Louis Park mm-hmm. around water towers. <laughs> and these Not a lot guys, of schmoozing going on. No, the, uh, and these guys the are getting like internships at NBC and, you know, that kind of thing. And I just never got it. And But you're saying that these kids, a lot of these kids who come from these uh, impoverished backgrounds who work incredibly hard think their philosophy, it's the work. Yeah. It's the work. Yeah, I should be judged these, by the work. There's these two sociologists who I read about who, who, who sort of planted that idea in my head. So one is this guy named Tony Jack, who is a sociologist at Harvard, and one is a woman named Lauren Rivera, who's a sociologist at Northwestern. And they both studied sort of different ends of elite education and especially low-income students coming through elite education. And um, – and they both found that this this idea that like I think especially if you're a black or Latino student and you are one of those super uh, successful kids, you have been it's been drilled into you by your parents that like school is not about socializing, it's not about fun, it's just about how hard you work. And then they get to one of these places, a Harvard or a Princeton, and you know kids are working pretty hard, but like the way you get ahead is also about socializing, like and 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 schmoozing and getting to know professors and. Uh, yeah, Tony Jack, and his he's got a great book called The Privileged Poor. He describes the way that the the first generation students, like the idea that you would, uh, well, they they would they call it like sucking up to professors or kissing ass, right? That that just seems so morally bankrupt. To them. <laughs> I like um, they have a moral stance. Yeah, and it's like you know, but like that actually is the way the world works. Like it is good <laughs> good to learn how to schmooze with your professors, but yeah, for for the kids who've been to private schools uh, or have grown up in that world, it just comes naturally. Like, of course, you suck up to your professor. Well, um, they've seen the their parents sucking up to people they should suck up to. Yeah. You know, in New York or in D.C. or wherever they are. But but so part of, I think, what is hard for those first-generation students is understanding that there's this different sort of moral code out there. I mean, I think I think some of the shocks of, of getting to that kind of environment are like, yeah, I'm like, you know, scrounging to, to afford the meal plan and these students are going out for lobster dinners. But I actually think – In their Mercedes. In their Mercedes. And that stuff I think definitely matters. But I think it is more the sort of like, ah, this is the way the world works experience that those students have. Like they understand that the way that students are selected for this institution is not fair and is biased against people like them even though they got lucky and got in. They know there are a lot of people at home like them who didn't get in. And that being in this institution gives you all these advantages that they can see these rich kids getting and that the way that the system works is not just about hard work. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We, we've been talking to uh, Paul Tuff. We're going to pick up with that. Uh, he is the author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. And we'll be right back after this word from somebody.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Welcome back. Our guest is Paul Tuff. In the book, you have these portraits of these extraordinary kids. And the book opens with you just happen by accident to be with this girl from very poor background in a urban school, poor school, who has worked her butt off and it's the day she's finding out you're there accidentally there on March 30th when she's going to find out if she got in to where she applied. So she gets weight listed at Penn? No, she doesn't get into Penn. She gets weight listed at Princeton, but nobody ever gets oh. off the weight list at Princeton. Oh, that was it. Yeah. yeah. But the next day she gets into Stanford. Yeah. Um, and Stanford does their – they're the one sort of uh, like Ivy-ish school that does it the next day. Um, and Stanford is you know uh, statistically harder to get into than I think literally anywhere else. And so she was – I not. think you said that the four were Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford. Yeah. But I, think Stanford, the I, think, most I think Stanford was, was even lower than Princeton. And so she, she really didn't think she was going to get, especially not after not getting into Penn, she didn't think she was going to get into Stanford, and then she does. And so that's where she is now. She's doing great. Um, what felt important to me about that moment was that it 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 sort of complicated her very idealistic idea of, of meritocratic um, college admissions. That like, well, if she's a perfect fit for Stanford, but actually she wouldn't fit in at Penn, like how could that – that doesn't make any sense. I feel like it just changed her idea of like how the system works. And I feel like all these students, when they, whether it's, you know, when they get to the – you know, start meeting the squash players at their college or whether it is uh, watching the other students schmooze those professors, there's that moment that comes when you are an idealistic low-income student and you make it to one of these highly selective institutions. There's that moment where you're like, ah, I get it. This is how it works. Um, and, you know, and I think a lot – they always feel lucky that they're, that they're in there, but they get that the system itself is uh, Jared good. Kushner must be really smart because he went to Harvard. <laughs> Uh, brilliant, brilliant kid. And uh, uh, that was completely fair and on the level, right? Well, the crazy thing about the Jared Kushner story, I mean, in some ways, his story is actually not that unusual that that his father, uh, he was a a not very good 
uh, private school student uh, somewhere in New Jersey, and his dad gave three million dollars to Harvard at the beginning of his uh, senior you know, high school. Who should have remarkably got it. It, it? If Felicity Huffman had read your book beforehand, she could have gone directly <laughs> to the school and said, "You know, you got. If I give you this much, think about how many." Really deserving kids can get in. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the <laughs> who, about that guy. Who, you know, I mean, that's that's part of the calculus, right? I mean, so this guy Rick Singer, the guy, the the crooked college coach at the head of that admission scandal, he would talk to parents like Felicity Huffman about the fact that there was the front door, which was for suckers. That was like the door that you you applied in. I was just actually sending in your application the way Shannon Torres did and all these other students in my book. Then there's the back door, which is the Kushner door. Uh, but he was like, well, that there's two things wrong with the back door, he would say to Felicity Huffman and her uh, cohort. One is that it's really expensive. It's like $3 million to get your kid in, whereas I can get you in for a few hundred thousand. And the other is it's not guaranteed. And I feel like the Ivy League schools will make the point that, like, you know, that $3 million that comes with no guarantee seems like it's a pretty I think, good leg up. But Is but it possible that it was a sure thing. $1 million comes with no guarantee? But $3 million does come with a guarantee. I think it it may be. I suspect. Well, yeah, but he went to college how many years ago? I mean, he's 38 or something like that, 39. So. Um, yes, it was a while ago. Yeah, I think it's up. I think it's up there. But I, but you know, they, they, these institutions say there is no actual way you can buy your way in. And I'm sure a library would do it. Yeah, a library should do it. I mean, a lot of the gifts that they get are are so. I mean, you know, I wrote about this Harvard's fundraising campaign that was going. They on. must have an endowment. What's their endowment? Do you know? It's like thirty six billion dollars. Okay. <laughs> so, and and do other schools have endowments? I mean, Princeton must. I'm sure. Yeah, Princeton has the highest per undergraduate, I think, but they don't. But not the highest overall. I can't quite remember. Well, Harvard has all these graduate schools yeah. that Princeton doesn't have. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's, uh, as in everything in higher education and arguably everything in American life, there's been this um, this stratification, this sort of pulling away of the most uh, wealthy, um, in this case, the most wealthy institutions. So the top maybe 20 um, institutions have gigantic endowments that have only been getting bigger uh, and every other institution is, has less of an endowment than they used to and there's this huge, huge gap between them and that's like Trinity. Trinity's this like pretty rich school, right? But that is going broke, educating rich kids. Harvard is not going broke. Uh, they are making money. Yeah, so Trinity had no endowment, so the pressure is they had on. One. Yeah, but not enough. Yeah, they're, they're uh, losing money. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, and, and, you know, and the donor class feels no desire to sort of um, bridge this gap. And so this this Harvard fundraising campaign that I write about in the book, it, they set out to raise more money than had ever been raised by any higher education campaign. Uh, they wanted to raise $6.5 billion in five years, which people just thought was crazy. Uh, and instead they raised it in two and a half years and they ended up making $9.6 billion. They can ask for any and, amount. And, and then this gets in the legacies. Yeah, because uh, the theory is is that if you accept legacies, then that family is invested in the school mm-hmm. and will donate. I feel like the legacy thing is part of those giant donations. But at a certain point, when you're donating like three hundred and fifty million dollars to Harvard, 
you have other things in mind than just your kids getting in. You're overpaying, certainly, for us. Oh, if you're donating $350 million. I think that was the highest, the biggest donation than anybody. Okay, well, that guy is invest. That's not about getting his kid in (laughs) (laughs) or his grandchild in. That is about uh, uh, loyalty to the institution, though. Yeah, but it's also about, I mean, I feel like the thing about those donors is that it's good, it's better to donate to a university than to some things, but they, they, I think, think of this as sort of a progressive uh, act, right? That they well, are, well, that means that any, any low-income kid, any first-generation kid or low-income kid can go and get a free ride. That's what yeah. it means. Well, that's what Harvard wants you to think that it means. But really, I mean, you know, most of those don't those, they? Don't they? Must, yeah, they do. But they, do. Like, they they could pay for that. They you don't need a thirty six billion dollar endowment to pay for that, right? So if you're giving right. if you're giving that much money to an institution that has a, has just thirty six billion dollars just sitting there in the bank, like you, and that is mostly educating rich kids and not low income kids. You know, it's a it's a donation in favor of inequity and and our. Tax dollars are helping to underwrite that, right? Because it's a tax deductible. It's a tax deductible donation to an institution that has thirty six billion dollars, <laughs> yeah, and that is mostly educating rich kids. Okay, and yeah, I just felt like because in the the, the admissions guy from Trinity was trying to get six uh, nineteen million dollars yes. in tuition from their class. And I was just going, why didn't Harvard just give them? <laughs> like just, Harvard. Give just right, right. Well, just just give him, just give him three million, right. so the Trinity can get the kids that he wanted. There's one point at which they have to make the final cut, yeah. And all of the uh, admissions officers have been fighting and fighting and fighting for specific kids who are poor, yeah. And they got to get it down, and they got to make. The money they got to get hit the nineteen million in tuition, and so they got they got to cut these kids. Yeah, absolutely. It would be good for them to slide some of that money over to Trinity, but even better would be to slide some of that money over to the public institutions that are really educating lots of low income mm-hmm. students, and who yep. over the past couple of decades. You know, these are the institutions that we've cut funding for by like fifteen or twenty percent in every state. So at this moment, where yeah, we're this, like we're giving tax breaks to billionaires <laughs> to give millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to institutions with uh, endowments of billions of dollars, we uh, are pulling back public funding for the institutions that are actually educating low-income students, and you know, and, and that are are short on money. So yeah, we've seen like, we've seen tuitions for state schools go up because state governments are investing less. Yeah. Yeah, and so two things happen when when state governments invest less. One is tuition goes up and debt goes up, uh, but the other is the institutions become less effective too. I mean, they have to cut corners. They just it's they don't make up. Well, I wish they wouldn't spend so much money on on the damn uh, student union and the gym. I mean, yeah, these kids are just uh, like they're on the stairmaster all day instead of studying. Uh, I didn't have that when I went to school. I know the lazy river and the climbing wall. Those those were sort of the um, the default complaints about what universities were spending money on instead of instead What's of. What's the lazy river? A lazy river is. Uh, <laughs> I don't like know what the lazy river is. It's like a like a pool where you sit there in a inner tube and you just kind of like drift around all day instead of doing your calculus homework. Oh, that maybe is calming. Yeah, 
and the kids need that because it's so high pressure these days. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there are. I, I mean, you know, most of what is changing. I'm is, just trying to right. make their case of yeah. why you need that thing. I'm, I think in reality there are not actually lazy rivers at most like regional public universities, which is where the cuts are really. Okay, uh, everybody, uh, I, I think this is uh, going to be a good one, and uh, I'll see you uh, soon. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.